This is exactly right. The risk of being vulnerable feels so much huger and so much more scary than the risk of unicycling down a mountain. When you unicycle down a mountain, you have a helmet on and you have shin guards and arm guards and elbow guards and gloves on. And it fe- you feel so protected and that you just never get when you're trying to be vulnerable. <laughs> Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Fearlessly Different with our esteemed guest, Mickey Rowe. Mickey has had a prolific and varied career as an actor, director, consultant, and public speaker. And he's now highly sought after both nationally and internationally. He was the first autistic actor to play Christopher Boone, the lead role in the Tony Award-winning play, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. He has also appeared as the title role in the Tony Award-winning play Amadeus and more. Mickey's been featured in the New York Times, New York Times Magazine, PBS, Vogue, Playbill, NPR, CNN, Wall Street Journal, HuffPost, and Forbes, and is keynoted at organizations including Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, the Kennedy Center, Yale University, Columbia University, Disability Rights Washington, the Gershwin Theater of Broadway, the DAC of South Korean government, and much, much more. He was the founding artistic director of National Disability Theater, which works in partnership with Tony Award-winning companies such as La Jolla Playhouse in San Diego, California, and the Goodman Theater in Chicago. And, 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 he is the author of his new and truly distinct and important memoir, Fearlessly Different, An Autistic Actor's Journey to Broadway's Biggest Stage. Mickey, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It is such a huge honor to be here today with you. And thank you for that incredibly kind introduction. I, I had to um, I had to go through all of it, um, especially after finishing your memoir this morning. I finished it this morning. And your journey, which we are going to be talking about today... Um, I just have to say, Mickey, it's so heroic and so inspirational. And everything on in your bio has just been hard fought, won through sheer perseverance and will and hope and dream. Oh, that's that's kind of you to say. And that's very sweet of you to say. I hope it inspires you. to action as well, yes. Thank totally, you. totally. Action to make a difference, which of course this show is about, and um, your life is very much about. Tell, okay, since I'm, uh, I have the benefit of having read about your life. So um, for those listening, for those listening who have yet to do so, um, tell everyone just a little bit about you know where you're from and your upbringing. Yeah. So. Um, I am autistic and legally blind. I'm visually impaired. Um, I, in school, was in special ed for a part of the day through high school, had speech therapy, occupational therapy, all of those special ed resources. And really through high school. I didn't really have any friends. I didn't know how to make a friend. Mm -hmm. I spent most of the day in recess and at lunch periods, just pacing the hallways, not knowing who to talk to, how to talk to them, or really how to make a friend. And so that was me in school. Yeah. Um, And then, and then 
as, as autistic people, there are so many resources for autistic people when they are under the age of 18, really Mm -hmm. quite a lot of resources out there. But then when you turn 18, you're sort of just released into the world. Um, yeah. And all those resources kind of disappear for autistic people. So I, I had to just sink or swim and figure out how to make it in this world, I guess, how to survive and keep going. Oh, and survival is a big part of your story, um, which I want to dive deeper in. And before we get that, you said something about, you know, you described your challenges um, growing up with autism and also, you know, without even knowing you had autism, we'll talk about diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, the me- In the meanwhile, while this was, all this stuff was happening at school and it was hard to make friends, you had this whole other side of your life, these, all these other talents and abilities, mm-hmm. right? Like you were, you were, you were doing magic. You were walking on stilts. You were riding a unicycle. And yes, everyone, um, there is such a thing called, um, it's basically mountain bike unicycling where you go down the uh-huh. highest mountains in the world. So you were doing all of this. This was this other side of your life while you also have to endure societal part of life. Yeah, I th- so many autistic people. I think there's sometimes a misconception that all autistic people really hate any touch or physical movement or things like that. But so many autistic people are really sensory seeking. Um, That proprioceptive input that other people feel in a more regulated way, autistic people can sometimes either feel way too much of it or really not feel enough proprioceptive input. Mm-hmm. So we go out of our ways to go swinging or spinning or jumping, or you often see autistic people stimming, which is when they flap their hands and rock back and forth a little bit. And that's because we so crave that proprioceptive input. And so for me, as an autistic kid, I, did, I wasn't going out after school and hanging out with friends or anything, but that meant that I had all the time in the world to learn how to unicycle and stilt walk and juggle and get all this proprioceptive input in every way that I possibly could and try to figure out ways to connect with the world through kind of performing like that, that yeah, yeah. leveled the playing field a little bit, I guess, maybe. Well, and, you know, here you are, you're performing at the level of experienced carnies who are adults, Right. I mean, so did you did you know uh-huh. that at a young age, you know, you didn't have these other things that other kids had, you know, that you saw at school? Were you also aware that those talents were, you know, off the charts that you did have? You know, I think I <laughs> I don't know if those talents are off the charts, but <laughs> I think I definitely took a lot of pride <laughs> in those talents when <laughs> I was a kid, for sure. Um, yes, and I I would I so I I would just show up at fairs and festivals. Make make no mistake, I was not invited or hired yeah. the majority of the time to be there, but I would just show up and uh, assert myself as being <laughs> just yeah. as professional as the professional carnies, I suppose. That, that one of the many pictures in your book, um, it, the picture of you on your stilts, and there's a picture taken mm-hmm. behind you of you're on like ten foot stilts or so, and the or you're ten, uh-huh. you're way up, and the, there's a child like yeah. perspective between your leg looking up at you in, you know, obviously awe, you were the performer. I mean, what did it feel like to be in that role, that performing role when you were young? It felt so good because I think for the majority of my life, you know, people often feel really uncomfortable around individuals with disabilities or individuals with developmental disabilities as well. I think we aren't taught how to interact with or be friends with or respond to disability. That's not something we really talk about in our society, especially if you're non-disabled and that's not something we know how to interact with. So Mm -hmm. for the majority of my life, I think people felt really maybe uncomfortable around me and I could read that in their, the way they talked to me or treated me, Mm -hmm. um, even if I didn't directly understand it. 
but when I got to perform on stilts or on a unicycle at a farmer's market or at the at a fair, mm-hmm. everyone who saw me smiled and I made everyone happy who saw me. And mm-hmm. I think that's such a good feeling for an autistic child who maybe their whole life has been told that they are messing up or they're bad or making mistakes all the time or this or that. When the autistic child is trying the best they can to do the right thing and get approval and do the thing the way the the non-autistic person wants them to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're just told all the time that we're doing things wrong or getting in trouble. And so it felt very good to be on stilter on a unicycle where when mm-hmm. everyone, saw, anyone who saw me, they smiled and I made them happy. And the com- you write about the comfort of, in, in your many roles that you've now had, but mm-hmm. the comfort, particularly early on, of being in a role which allowed you to, like, you knew what to do. You, you, you knew the part, right? There wasn't, there weren't going to be major surprises coming at you that you didn't understand when you were, play, when you were playing your part. Yes, yeah. So this, this interview, for example, right, mm-hmm. is super easy for me. Because the roles are really clear. You're the interviewer. I'm mm-hmm. the interviewee. You ask the questions and I answer them. And mm-hmm. I'm supposed to sound smart and maybe funny, right? That's You're doing, just, doing a great job. The roles doing a great are, job. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. But the roles are super clear. And that makes, makes this relationship really easy. If I saw you on the street, for example, though, uh, if we're just passing by each other as peers, those roles aren't really clear. There's no rule book. I don't know if I'm supposed to stop and talk to you or if mm-hmm. I'm not supposed to stop and talk to you or if we do stop and talk, right? Mm-hmm. Are we have are we just having a five minute, hey, how are you doing? Good to see you. Or are we supposed to like talk to each other for a full hour or two hours? You know, like the roles just aren't very clear. Mm-hmm. So autistic people often really love situations that kind of put parameters on those mm-hmm. roles and make those roles more clear and easy to understand um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and take some of that intuition out of it. Cause there's so much social peer intuition that most people have that autistic folks just don't have. And so the more mm-hmm. we can create situations that put parameters on that through roles, the easier it yeah. is. So that's definitely why I liked what, like doing interviews like this. That's definitely why I liked stilt walking or being a magician or mm-hmm. acting where someone says, this is your part. Yeah. You are Mozart. Here's how he interacts with the world. Yeah. Here's how people interact with him. And yeah. all of dialogue you have is scripted and already written down yeah. by someone else. Yeah. All right, people. So just so you know that um, Mickey is humble when he said I, he doesn't know about how any of those things are you know, really advanced. So you unicycled down, was it Mount Rainier? with the like the is it mount rainier that, <laughs> with, with, all with, sorts of mountains yeah yes, that absolutely like, i would say with the unicycling champion yes yeah i mean that is not typical i mean that talk about <laughs> you know fearlessly i mean so there's fearlessness in terms of um you know those kind of risks and there is fearlessness in terms of you continuously putting yourself out there and literally mm. never, ever, I mean, one of your messages to everyone, never, ever, ever give up. Like you, you just did not give up. You wanted to be cast in that part. You wanted to be the first person with autism to play that character with autism. And without, you know, people are going to have to read this, the, the book for the story. But like you just, yes, you got, you know, you're going to get down every once in a while. You're going to feel a little defeated, but you just never stopped. Yeah. And isn't it so interesting that so often the risk of being vulnerable like that feels so much huger and so much more scary than the risk of unicycling down a mountain? You know, when you unicycle down a mountain, you have a helmet on and you have shin guards and arm guards and elbow guards and gloves on and... It fe- you feel so protected and like and yeah. safe in a way right. that you just never get when you're trying to be vulnerable. <laughs> yeah. Did you, you know, 
that's actually I'm glad you brought that up the the feeling of vulnerability because it seemed like for you what 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 made you feel vulnerable in life growing up might be different than some other folks neurotypical folks and then what makes other folks feel completely vulnerable you just kind of like put your head down and just went for it you know so like did you, and is that even a fair, a fair question? Like, is that a fair I think, comparison? I think that's absolutely fair to say. Yeah. I think part of it is, is that autistic people really don't understand or have the social rule book that everyone else is playing with. So while something might make you uncomfortable because you have the social rule book, you know what all these social rules are and you understand them. They're just a part of who you are. And mm-hmm. so doing something that I did in my life might feel very vulnerable to you because it goes so against the grain of some social, something in the social rule book there. Yeah. It wouldn't make me feel uncomfortable because I have no awareness of that social rule book whatsoever. Yeah. So if I don't know that it's, if I don't know the social rule book, then breaking those rules doesn't feel uncomfortable to me because I'm not even aware that I'm breaking them, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if that it, makes it, any sense at all. I don't know make, if that answered the question. It it does because so much in society. Well, one of your many messages in your memoir is basically to be big, to be bold, to like be everything that you're meant to be. And mm-hmm. society and family, um, intentionally and unintentionally, tends to pick us apart over time about what's okay, about what's not okay, you know, shame, what, you know, giving shame and, and, and people do get smaller, unfortunately, you know, so in a sense, what you're talking about without having that playbook, which I know does not, I know is challenging and reading about how challenging it is. It also presented a different point of view and a different perspective as you talk about um, people with autism and people with disabilities have a different perspective. Absolutely. And it did in some ways give in just as many ways as not having that social rule book made my life difficult. It also gave me so many advantages in some ways as well, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What you said just reminded me of uh, really my first mentor, uh, Rita Giomi at Seattle Children's Theater, who is the associate artistic director and casting director there. At one point, I had a meeting in her office where we kind of went over. It was sort of like a performance review for a class I did at Seattle Children's Theater at one point. And I remember she said to me basically exactly what you just said, which is, you know, if you end up going to school for theater or if you end up doing this or that, society is going to really try to make you smaller and make you not you. They're going to try to make you just like everyone else and uh, unfortunately that's just what happens when you go to a school or an institution or do this more mm-hmm. and you just need to fight that tooth and nail <laughs> yeah. and try to yeah. not yeah. allow that to happen. Yes. Words of wisdom, words of wisdom. Mm-hmm. I, um, in thinking about you saying earlier that, you know, you're often were told like things you're doing wrong and, um, being faith made to feel different, even if you didn't always know why. Um, mm-hmm. It seemed like your grandparents played a very important part in your childhood, um, not making you feel like that. Absolutely. My grandparents were so trusting in me in a way that I don't think we always trust our our kids, I think me as a dad now, I'm a father, and it is difficult at times to trust my own children the way my grandparents trusted me. Mm-hmm. Um, they allowed me to take risks of all kinds, and they also really helped me to feel unsupervised at times as well. They would, uh, they lived in West Seattle um, on Puget Sound. And they would just set me free to let me go explore the sound, explore the ocean, explore uh, the beach, go scrambling under the ferry docks. Uh, and I'm sure 
that they were keeping an eye on me through the window of their house. I'm sure they were in the kitchen or whatever, looking mm -hmm. out the window, watching me. But to me as a kid, I really felt unsupervised and free. Like I just mm -hmm. had the freedom to completely explore and be myself. Yeah. And I think that's, and that's the, that last piece is what I really got from what you wrote, which is you were able to, you were accepted for who you were. You didn't have to question mm -hmm. what you were doing, what your interests were, if you were um, flapping or stimming or, you know, being sensory yeah. seeking, like your grandma would just get on the floor and like join you, right? Like it was just, it just seems such. Or when I said, you know, yeah, or if I said that I needed to dress like a clown when I left the house, my grandma would sew the costumes so that I could dress like a clown. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Absolutely. I also want to bring in um, the, the hard reality that we all need to grapple in um, about the mistreatment. I mean, one of the, one of your, many hats is as a um, disabilities activist and bringing, li bringing mm. light to um, the horrific, I mean, it's horrific, the horrific facts of the amount of abuse of uh, disabled individuals, the amount of under and unemployment and underpay of disabled and uh, um, and, and I'm using disabled broadly here, not just, you know, talking about autism because you are uh, a fighter absolutely. for all. Yeah, you and, are using yeah, disabled yeah. absolutely yeah. appropriately. And and also, as you talk about in the book and end with the book, which it gives me a heavy heart having just read that, is the lists of disabled children who are murdered essentially because they're disabled. Like by this their is family a, members. By their, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, by their family members. Like this mm -hmm. is happening and, um, you know, yeah. say, say a little about this, please. Absolutely. So our, our society tends to really see disabled people as burdens frequently, um, as a disabled person myself, I know I am frequently fighting that internalized ableism of feeling like I'm a burden for existing just mm -hmm. for existing. And parents also are often even now, but especially even more so when I was a young person taught to feel real shame that their child is disabled mm -hmm. and to be embarrassed that their child is disabled. Um, and this has led to, um, one disabled individual being killed by their families or caregivers, at least one per week, uh, every single week this happens. And I'm sure that those numbers have also only gone up during the pandemic when families have less resources mm -hmm. to send their kids to school or special ed or to send to have other people come to their house and help um, mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. pre-pandemic, at least one child per week is killed by their, one person with a disability is killed per week by their families or caregivers. And when this happens, the real shame, firstly, it almost never makes the news. It almost never makes the media. Mm -hmm. But when it does, unfortunately, the news and media are 100% sympathetic to the parents. Right saying things like, well, you, you don't know how hard it is mm -hmm. to raise a parent, to raise a person with a disability until you have done it yourself mm -hmm. or to say that child suffered so much because of their disability. And now that they are, they've been killed, they will no longer have to suffer anymore. So it was a mm -hmm. sympathy killing almost. Mm -hmm. And this is not true. People with disabilities, firstly, people with disabilities are not burdens. And they are, people with disabilities are powerful. People with disabilities are sexy and smart. <laughs> uh, if you're a company out there listening right now, if you are able to employ people, people with disabilities are truly some of the best creative problem solvers mm -hmm. in the world because we have to creatively problem solve every day to navigate a world that wasn't built for us. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. 
we have so much to contribute to the world. So it's such a shame that other people are always making judgments in mm-hmm. terms of how much they feel our lives are worth and whether they feel that our lives are worth living. And you used a, so a few things I want to highlight there. You, um, you said, you know, you've said ableist, ableism. So for everyone listening, it's a very important term. You know, the idea that our world is set up for people who are abled um, and prioritized yeah. for people who are abled instead of disabled. Yeah. And I also want to specify that all of these, all of this discrimination, you know, another thing you mentioned in the book is that 85% of autistic college graduates are unemployed. Mm -hmm. 85% of autistic college graduates are unemployed Mm -hmm. and they made it through college. So why, why could they not have any job (laughs) if they were able to make it all the way through college? But all of these statistics, all of this ableism, as you said, it's not intentional. It's not, Mm -hmm. no one is do, no one to my knowledge is doing this maliciously Mm -hmm. or intentionally hating on people with disabilities. It's not it's not intentional, but it is just this kind of underlying thing in society where we don't realize how capable people with disabilities are. We don't realize mm-hmm. how much their lives are worth. And we we sometimes have trouble humanizing them and seeing them as Absolutely. the same as that we would see ourselves. So I just want to specify yeah. that, yes, mm-hmm. uh, ableism is so such an important thing to learn about, but also it's not it's not intentional. And we need to go in realizing that it's not something that anyone mm-hmm. is intentionally doing. Mm-hmm. Well, and as you write about, it's really a lack, a lot of uh, this is about education, a lack of awareness, um, mm-hmm. myths, um, Absolutely. not having information, which is why you're doing what you're doing, which is why I'm glad we can have this conversation to spread this. And when we think about information, um, Something that we talk about on the show with different guests related to diagnoses, you know, this this dilemma of um, to label and to pathologize people and to limit people, mm-hmm. which clearly diagnoses can do that, but also diagnoses can provide understanding and um, li- basically liberation. And I want to I want to read yes. something that you said. Um, you said two things. One is the medical model says that a person's disability is the problem, that there is something wrong with the person that needs to be fixed, made whole, or cured. The social model says that the actual problem is in an ableist and inaccessible society that is set up by and for non-disabled people, that it is society that needs to be repaired. So I, I just wanted to highlight that very important quote because it's a different way of looking at a person in terms of looking at the context at which the person is living as opposed to just the person. And you said a weight lifted through diagnosis. Suddenly you are no longer adrift on a lonely sea, but you are, an, are anchored by a name for the thing and then you find safe harbor in the knowledge that there's a community of other people who feel and think the same way you do and are going through the same things you are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it is, you know, a lot. I'm often asked by parents. Oftentimes parents will come up to me at an event or write to me on Facebook or email and saying, my child is 10 years old. They are autistic. Um, They're in special ed. I don't know whether to tell my child that they are autistic or not. Mm -hmm. And I often hear parents whose kids are on the spectrum struggling with whether or not to share the child's diagnosis, share with the child that they are different, that they are autistic. And I think that when it comes to things like autism, you know, kids are so much smarter than we give them credit for. Kids are so much smarter than we think Mm -hmm. they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the kid knows they're different. The kid knows that they go to special ed maybe while everyone else is going to the regular classrooms. The kid, Mm -hmm. the kid knows that when people talk to them, maybe 
when people talk to all of the other kids their age, they talk normally in one way about, I don't know, sports or what does this kid want to do when they grow up? And then when they talk to uh, the kid with autism, maybe their voice rises quite a few octaves and they talk as if they're talking to a three-year-old or a four-year-old. Like we, we feel all this and see all this. And so I think my encouragement, first off, I don't know anyone's family and everyone's family needs to make the decision that's right for them. And right. I'm not here to tell anyone what to do uh, because whatever decision a parent is making for their family, I'm sure is the right decision and they know their specifics better. Yes. But what I can do is speak to my lived experience and say that I have found that information is power mm-hmm. and that I have been so much more enabled by being able to learn about autism, being able to learn what are my weaknesses specifically and mm-hmm. what are my strengths specifically mm-hmm. and being able to understand my weaknesses and strengths has enabled me so much. Um, and also just being able to know and understand and research, oh, this is why this always happens in my life. Mm-hmm. This is why whenever I reach out for human connection, it fails. This is mm-hmm. why mm-hmm. these things keep happening. It's not because no one likes me. It's not because I'm stupid or bad, um, but just being able to understand it more objectively is so helpful, I have found for my life. Yes. Yes, and because kids make up we, we humans make up usually worse explanations and reasons for what is if we don't know what is. We, we usually go to a pretty dark place, like there's something really bad with me, wrong with me. Now, Mickey, you were what, like college when you got your diagnosis or around that age, right? Yeah, I was yeah. likely, I was likely diagnosed in some way, um, mm-hmm. whether it was formally or informally in elementary school, just seeing as all of the uh, supports that I had through school were pretty specifically tailored towards autism with occupational therapy and speech therapy and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but because I didn't know that I, I received my first diagnosis that I was aware of in college. Yes. Yeah. So looking back, what age would knowing that have been really helpful to you? Yeah, I think, you know, as a parent now I have kids on the autism spectrum. Mm Mm-hmm. And what we have tried to do in our family is make it just part of the landscape of our family, make it part of the landscape of our life Mm -hmm. so that there likely won't be an age where I have to sit down with my child. Oh, now you've turned 10 years old. Let me sit down with you and have this really hard conversation and tell you that you're autistic and all the hard things that that means for you. Um, Instead, we just try to subtly bring it up in small ways, always. So if, uh, for instance, the other day, all of our kids were outside playing soccer, and one of our kids who's autistic said uh, that they really liked soccer because they were good at it, but really hated it because it was too noisy and the noise (laughs) was really making their head hurt. Yeah, And so we said, oh, yeah, well, you know, because you're autistic, uh, sometimes noises can be louder for you than they are for other people. Or sometimes that kind of sensory Mm -hmm. input can really not feel good to you and feel different than it feels for kid A and kid B who aren't autistic. But why don't you just put on some headphones or put earplugs in and then you can go back out and play soccer and it won't be a big deal. So we try to just have the conversation in small little ways constantly Mm -hmm. so that we don't ever have to sit down and have a big conversation. And then also when the kids have questions about, about it, Mm -hmm. we then can answer, we can be led by their curiosity and give them the information about autism that they're curious about at an age appropriate level. That is just a wonderful approach on both sides of it. So on the one hand, you're basically using 
the name autism, the description autism, the label autism to describe your child's experience to them so they can, he, they can make sense of their experience. It's not less than, it's not pathologizing, mm-hmm. it's an explanation. And then you're also yeah. there to offer information, which we would say would be like, you know, even or equivalent to a child's readiness, whether it's chronological readiness or, or developmental maturity readiness, right? Like they come to you with questions when often when they're ready. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's the approach we've taken in our house. Mm -hmm. Okay. So relationship. And I think it also normalizes. I think it also normalizes autism. I think sometimes Mm -hmm. when you see it as something where you need to sit down and have a big conversation about it where the kid can see the parent is sweating a little bit and nervous about having this conversation and vice versa. It can make it feel like maybe autism is something scary or awful. Mm-hmm. And if you can, the more we can just normalize it and have it be just a normal part of our normal lives, because it is, yeah. um, I think the less scary it can be and the less, the more manageable it can feel for both the parent and the kid as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, relationships. So you, you've, you talked about how, you know, regular relationships are challenging when you're growing up with autism. You don't have the playbook. So then we get to add a layer of complexity to that with intimate uh-huh. romantic relationships. And that's a whole nother, I mean, that's, I don't, is that not, well, is that another, is that another playbook or is that another uh, several chapters? I don't know. It's a lot for all for, it's a lot, right. <laughs> of, and I'm going to preface yeah, this right now yeah. with just saying, I'm still learning this. Yeah. I don't know that I have yeah. all the answers here yet. <laughs> I'm learning as I go <laughs> still. Uh, uh, uh. Uh, a future memoir to come. Uh, so, <laughs> so a few things on the show. You know, a huge part of what we talk about is awareness and the idea that the more aware we are of who we are and where we came from, the more, the healthier and more fulfilled we can be, which will allow us to raise healthy children. And so, I feel like you had a, a few different things coming at you when it came to understanding healthy romantic relationship one like anyone lack of experience and then no playbook um and and it's really good to feel desired and then two um you know you your grandparents were really supportive but you also had a, a parent that you did not necessarily get treated always with the love that you would then know to look for. Is that reasonable for me to say? Absolutely. 100% reasonable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a few things happened. Well, I was not feeling, I'm sure if you asked my mother, she would say that she loves me deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no doubt about that. It's also entirely fair for me to say, and she has known for decades that I did not feel that love from her, that Mm -hmm. I did not see that feeling put into action from her. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was often on the, instead told things or had constant side comments made to me to make me feel the opposite. Um, The one that's coming to my mind right now is I would hear her say frequently either to me or her friends, well, the first pancake, I was the oldest child. I was the first child. And she'd Mm -hmm. say, well, the first pancake never turns out or things like that. Mm. Um, So that was really hard. My parents' relationship, my parents are now divorced, but when they were together, I also didn't really see a loving relationship modeled Mm -hmm. between them. And then the last final piece that I think is almost the most important, even more dramatic than the other two things that I just mentioned is I was constantly told by family members or even by strangers when I was out street performing uh, at markets and things that, oh, you'll be really lucky if you find someone to marry you or, oh, it'll take quite the special person to want to marry you or Mm -hmm. um, just telling me that, and so, which is something speaking to other disabled adults now I found is fairly common, almost fairly universal in mm-hmm. disability spaces. 
disabled people, at least of my generation, being told that they will be so lucky if they can find someone to marry them and that no one's going to really want to marry them. So they should just accept that. Mm -hmm. So all of these things led me to really believing that I needed to just accept love, like the first person who I could find who would want to be with me. Mm -hmm. I needed to just take that and see it as, as the one time this might happen in life, because that's kind of what I'd been taught to believe would happen. Right. Um, Right. And so that led me to being in some really difficult and abusive relationship, uh, relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It was hard to, um, as I was, as I got to know you and was cheering for you in your, in your book, um, it was, it was hard to read what you experienced. Um, and, and you described it also in a very fair and non-judgmental way. Um, I'm being a teaser to everyone. We can't talk about that. Um, <laughs> you know, um, in a very non-judgmental way, a very difficult situation. Um, and it led to a few things. It led to you, as you put, realizing your role as a father. Like you do, mm-hmm. like, right? Like you ended up knowing what you needed to do in your role as a father. Yeah. You're, you're going to steal my answer for, okay, for okay. your last question. There, but, okay, absolutely, okay. but yes, okay, so absolutely. We're going to save it. We're going to save it. Okay. Absolutely. Um, okay. So, okay, everyone, we're, we're almost there. Um, moving you can to keep the, talking. You can keep yeah. asking, though. <laughs> yeah. I, was just, I was just teasing you. No, no, I like that because I, 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 I have a feeling where you're going. So let's, um, we'll, I, let's table that. And then it goes to the next point, which is... Um, you found love. You found real love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So which how, was so yeah. surprising, so surprising and shocking, and truly earth-shattering to me in some way. You know, I think to finally feel love as a thirty-year-old, in some ways, I had to do a lot of mourning at that in that moment, and in at that time, because the experience of feeling love and feeling unconditional love made me realize that that was something I should have felt my whole life and Mm -hmm. made me realize the extent to which many, so many of the things that came before were not love in, in Mm -hmm. any actionable way, real way. Um, But I think it is so important you know, as we, as we love our kids, especially disabled kids, for them to know how valuable they are, how valued they are, and how lucky anyone would be to get to be with them. Because uh, otherwise, we're just setting people up for abuse. We're just making people easy targets for abuse. Yes. Um, but yeah, yes. so getting yeah. to feel love as, as an adult was truly earth shattering mm-hmm. and, and came with a lot of mourning with it, which was really surprising to me. Mm-hmm. So it was so shocking to me and surprising to, to my system to, to feel kind of mourning for my whole life in a way that I'd never felt before. I never felt sad about my life or mourned it. But then all of a sudden when I felt love for the first time, it just breaks down all these walls and, mm-hmm. uh, and, mm-hmm. and you do have to kind of mourn for the fact that you didn't have that earlier. Yeah, and you're talking about this awareness, right? This, uh, like, oh, there's so much more. It's an awareness of what you experienced, what you didn't experience, um, what it was possible to experience. And with awareness comes such tremendous growth. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's pain. There's pain to go through as we're growing. And it was maybe also the first time that I felt safe enough to grieve and reflect, whereas mm-hmm. maybe I just hadn't had the safety to even have the opportunity to begin the process mm-hmm. of reflecting mm-hmm. earlier than that. I can't imagine anything, I mean, more important than a person feeling 
an adult or a child feeling safe and feeling loved. Mm -hmm. Right. So for everyone yeah. listening, whatever side of, I mean, usually we're both children, <laughs> children uh -huh. and adults and perhaps partners and family members and, and safety, feeling safe and feeling loved, you know, like that is just such a huge percentage of the recipe for, uh, for feeling healthy and for raising healthy humans. Absolutely. And I feel like with our kids, right. They're so smart. They're like sponges getting so much information from the world. It's almost our entire job is just to make them feel safe and loved. And if we can do that successfully, mm -hmm. they'll figure everything else out by themselves. They have yeah. the capacity to, to get everything else they need by themselves. We just need to create that opportunity for the sponge to yeah. soak it all up and grow. Yeah, it takes a little pressure off. When you say it that way, um, as a parent, I know the pressure that uh, that I feel to um, to help get our kids through this world that they're living in, uh, which mm -hmm. seems to get more and more complex. But as you put it, you know, like let's focus on let's focus on our kids feeling love and valued and uh, feeling safe, and then you know the rest sort of happens. It'll just fall into pl one way or another. It'll fall into yeah. place and yeah. it might fall into place in the ways that you pictured it falling into place when you pictured being a parent, when you pictured becoming a parent before they were born. And it might fall into place in completely different ways that you never would have ever pictured it looking like when you became a parent. And that's okay too. And we need to just realize that, you know, that part of the picture, that part of it is not our job. It's not mm -hmm. our job to worry about or try to force or all we have to do is create that space of safety and uh, that space yeah. of love and yeah, and then just be okay with with the parenting experience looking like whatever it looks like, whether it's how we pictured it or not. And it often does not always look how we pictured it, right? <laughs> we <have> to, <laughs> Absolutely. It goes that way. All right. Before we get to this final question here, I do want to just, um, I, I just have to, Re, you, you're a, so you are you're a leader you're a leader um you're a leader for change uh you're a leader for awareness um you're an activist and you wrote something at the very end that really spoke to me that i want to read to so everyone whether you are a parent a grandparent a coach a teacher um uh an employee an employer it, it, it speaks this is to all of us Leadership is not about power. Leadership is not about popularity. Leadership is about doing what is right. Leadership is about making the moral choice irresistible. Leadership isn't a position. Leadership is an action. And that just fills me up. For all all of my roles, I just feel like that that's the, that's a guiding it's a guiding principle um, which you have come to live by. Yeah, I think, and I think so often leadership has to do with getting out of the way and making it not about yourself too. And I think um, as parents, that is so, as a, as a parent, that's definitely where it's the hardest for me mm -hmm. to get out of the way and make it not be about me as the parent. <laughs> totally. Um, but so often I think leadership is about making it not about you and getting out of the way. Um, and how we can model, model the things that we want in ways that make them seem exciting and fun and, and irresistible. I think that's so much of what I do every day, whether it's as an activist or whether it's as a director in theater or whether it's as a parent trying to find ways to, to make the thing that I want, I want, make the picture of the world that I want to be in existence yeah. seem really fun and exciting and sexy and all of those things so that other people will also want to to join that world that I see might be possible maybe we need that right we all need that hope um and these why these conversations are so important why your your story is so important how you just put yourself into those pages and out there for everyone to see um in a vulnerable honest and authentic way 
Um, you also, I, you know, I love your quotes. You also, um, authenticity, you said something, authenticity is powerful. Authenticity is sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So thank you for being so authentic. And um, with that, we're, we're, we are to the question. So here we go. Are you ready? Mickey? Are you ready, Mickey? <laughs> I am ready. Do we get a drum roll? Do we get yeah. a drum roll? Phil, drum let's roll get some drum roll. Yeah, do some drum roll. Here we go. <laughs> here it is. Tell us about a time that you had a new awareness about yourself as an individual, an awareness about yourself as a parent, or even an awareness about your own parents. And that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, or those you love. Yeah. I think when, as a parent, I didn't ever picture myself becoming a parent. I, I really didn't think I was going to be a parent. I did not want to have kids. Um, but I am a dad and it, and I had kids, um, for reasons that you'll read in the book, but, <laughs> um, I don't know that I, even after having kids, I, it took my brain a little while to catch up and understand what that role was and how it was that me, Mickey, I got to enact that role and play that role of being a parent. I was going through a really tough time where my ex-wife was going through a mental health crisis um, she had been diagnosed with psychosis um, and was in and out of institutions uh, for that. And she began uh, both doing physical actions and also verbally um, sort of physically injuring the children and expressing expressing things that seemed like that was going to continue or escalate. Mm -hmm. Um, and I really did not know how to handle it. I felt so ill prepared to take on the world. You know, mm -hmm. we talk about how 85% of college graduates on the autism spectrum are unemployed or how, um, you know, I, I did not feel as an autistic person, like I had been empowered to be independent in the world or take on the world. Mm -hmm. um, so when this happened, I really didn't know what to do. I think I was also really struggling with the fact that I don't think my ex-wife was ill-intentioned. I think she, I don't know that she would have ever chosen to do anything other than be a good mom. Mm -hmm. And so that, that, that dichotomy really, that dichotomy of, I know this person wants to be a good per parent. Mm -hmm. I know they are trying to be a good parent and not understanding mental health enough to understand how that person could be trying and wanting to be a good parent so badly while also uh, physically injuring the kid, intentionally injuring the children. I just could not wrap my, wrap my head around that situation in a way that made it make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. So I felt really immobilized. Um, but I finally made the decision that what I needed to do was, uh, you know, take the kids early. I'd made a plan to take the kids early in the morning before she woke up. Um, I let her know that I was going to be going, taking them to the zoo just to buy us some time so that maybe we'd like a day extra head start uh, where she would think we were just at the zoo having a good time. Um, and I took the kids out of the house, uh, went to court, uh, got restraining orders put in place and uh, things like that. And, um, and three restraining orders later, um, and almost a year later, she was, uh, we set up, uh, supervised visitations mm -hmm. so that the kids would see her through supervised visitations. Um, and so I think that that moment, the moment that I made the decision to get out of the house with the children yeah. was the moment that I realized what my role was as a parent and mm -hmm. took full ownership of that role 
as a parent of being Papa Bear. Um, I think that was the moment when I had the understanding of that and took that role on and really owned it. And uh, kept your kids safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And it was Um, very hard to do that in ways that didn't, I think the struggle was doing it in ways where I, it didn't feel like you were putting blame on anyone mm-hmm. or um, you didn't feel like you were trying to punish anyone or be unfair to anyone, mm-hmm. especially in the court process, because, you know, in court, court does not, the court does not, they're not experts in mental health or any health, really. <laughs> that's <laughs> not what they do. The judges, right. that's not how they're trained. Um and they really like things to be as black and white as possible. And so it's it's very hard as someone who already doesn't understand the social rule book to try right. to figure out how to present what's happening in a nuanced way that maybe I don't even understand because I'm not an expert in psychosis or mental health either. Um, while also convincing the court that this is what needs to happen. But I was really lucky that we had lots of photographs and things. So the court was, was super helpful actually in the end. Well, and this, this story, the thread that goes through this story, um, your parenting story, your parenting awareness and your entire life is not giving up. Like yeah, so many no's or misunderstandings or disregard and whatever it was you 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 just did not you kept showing up and um it's not like things just worked out they things worked out because of all the action that you repeatedly take which was always it's which is for you is driven by your your passion and your beliefs and your values yeah and i also don't want to sound like a hero for not giving up cuz it's like what is the other choice you have you know yeah there's there's yeah. you really just don't have any other choice it's what anyone would do in this situation because there is no other yeah. option there is no other choice even writing the book um you know right i've been working at safeway through the pandemic and uh that just is not or a grocery store at yeah. the working through the pandemic and that's just not feasibly sustainable for my family financially. That's not a way that I can take care of the family. So it's just always thinking about what that next step is. Okay. Working at this grocery store is not going to help my family. What can I do? Great. Let's write the book. Let's make this happen. And finding ways to, to help the family financially while also helping yourself spiritually and emotionally and artistically to feel fulfilled as well. Yes. That, that, that sums it all up. Um, <laughs> Mickey, thank you for, um, again, sharing sharing yourself with us um, because it is a story. It's, it's a story of understanding. It's a story of trauma. It's a story of um, disability and ability and then of 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 triumph and of still growing and being human to right to this day it just keeps on going mm-hmm. the Absolutely. story it keeps on going so tell everyone where they can find this great memoir fearlessly different and also all of the other things that you have been involved with Absolutely you can find fearlessly different on beginning on March 15th uh, 2022 in on amazon.com audible uh, there's an audiobook bookstores everywhere um, or you can go to www.mickeyrow.com slash fearlessly different and there's a whole list of other independent bookstores if you want to support your local bookstore you can likely find uh, a link on my website um, or go directly to your local bookstore's website and you can pre-order the book through them as well. Thank you, Mickey, so much um, for this conversation. And uh, I wish you all the best on uh, what's next for you. 
Thank you so much. It's truly been such an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. Let's try to channel Mickey and do what is right. Treat people with understanding and compassion. Help with the increased awareness for how people with disabilities are treated in our country, how we can be different, how we can realize everyone's strengths. And I am going to end with a great Mickey quote. Our differences are our strengths. Thanks for listening. We appreciate your five-star reviews. We love you sharing these episodes with people you know who will benefit and joining our community. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself the question I ask myself each day. What footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll dot com forward slash ads for more information go to exactly listen subscribe and leave us a review on apple podcasts stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts